Back in the year 2000, Harvard public policy professor Robert Putnam wrote a book, you've heard me reference it before, called Bowling Alone. And through a mountain of research, what Dr. Putnam put forth is this idea that in the West, we have moved away from voluntary social connections. He uses the example of bowling leagues. Bowling leagues have all but disappeared, and yet bowling is still happening. People are choosing to bowl. They're just, in the words of the title of the book, bowling alone. And that whole idea of those voluntary social organizations shrinking doesn't just impact bowling leagues. It impacts um, the Moose Lodge, and it impacts neighborhood associations, and it impacts the local church. What Putnam put forth is that society has moved away from those mid-sized groups where we have healthy relationship with one another into a place where we are either um, in tribes that are polarized from other tribes or individuals who are isolated and there's very little space in between. Eleven years later, another professor, this time from MIT, wrote a book called Alone Together. Dr. Sherry Turkle expressed this idea that now, um, on top of Dr. Putnam's research, when you add in the smartphone and the always connected nature of our lives through social media, we are more isolated, but we feel connected. We feel as though because we have friends quote unquote, and we have those who are following us and we are following them, that we must have some level of connection. And yet, we are more isolated than we've ever been. Dr. Turkle's research actually showed that social media connections have a higher likelihood of isolating and destroying relationships than they do building relationships. Many of us have experienced that reality. There's another book written, this time from a professor on the other side of the U.S. Uh, Dr. Felicia Song from Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, wrote a book called Restless Devices. And Dr. Song expressed through the experience of her Gen, Gen Z students that were in her classroom and the debriefing that she did with them as they studied the effects of the internet and technology on their social network, what she discovered was we are so addicted to the dopamine hit that comes from an alert on our phone or a like on our post that we are, in her words, neurologically unstable and unable to engage in real person-to-person relationships. That idea of being neurologically unstable is a fascinating concept to me because effectively what she's saying is that our brains are constantly in a position where they can't feel fully comforted and satisfied. We feel insecure all the time. Our brains are in this position where we're always waiting for something or someone to give us the thing that we're longing for. We're not settled. And while you may or may not believe that you're as far gone as Dr. Song says that you are, or you may not have realized it yet, I think we all have some recognition of that idea of feeling isolated in the midst of lots of relationships and feeling unsettled, neurologically unstable, longing for something that we never quite get. This morning, I want to make what is likely a pretty bold claim to you. And that is this, that that longing, both for relationship and satisfaction, has always been 
not just in the last 20 or 30 years when the research has shown, but has always been found in the person of the Trinity. That the triune God of the Bible is the answer, the sole answer, to those longings of our hearts. A couple weeks ago, we began this short series on the Trinity, and we began uh, with the idea that there is mystery inherent in the whole concept that even though we are Western people and uh, we are intelligent people who are seeking to solve problems, we will not ever solve the problem of fully understanding God. In fact, um, it is right that we approach not just the Trinity, but all theology as mystery for the sake of mystery, recognizing that God is above us and beyond us, and we are unable to fully comprehend. And yet, within that reality, we ask the two questions that Dr. Daryl Johnson in his book, Experiencing the Trinity, has asked, and that, uh, that is this. One, uh, what does this all mean? And two, what does this all matter? That first question, I'm not sure we've done a very great job of getting around it. What does this all mean? Well, I'm not sure. We've we've tried to use the best words that we have. Pastor Asa and I have both used the fullness of the language capacity that we have to try to put out into words what we're seeking to try to understand ourselves, and I'm not sure we've gotten that far. What's this all mean? Well, the best we've gotten is a simple definition of the Trinity that I'm going to put again before you. Uh, The Trinity is an eternal intimate community of love. Three persons who are also one. Each of those words is important. Eternal, intimate, community, love. We can't fully get it, but we start to press into it. The second question, maybe we've gotten a little bit more traction on, what does it matter? Why do I care? How does the Trinity in this theoretical idea impact me and my life? The first thing that we said is that God, if he is indeed an eternal, intimate community of love, as I am drawn into that community, I become a co-lover along with him. That love becomes the natural response to my drawing close to him. I begin to love the, the God, Godhead himself, each of the persons of the Trinity, just as they love one another. I love you and the people around me, and I love the world around me, because God is drawn back in over and over again to worship and community and mission, the heartbeat of the Godhead. And so we become co-lovers with God. And then last week, Pastor Asta expressed to us this idea of these three persons of the Trinity uh, submitting to one another, not in an authoritative way, but in an honoring way, where they're uh, giving and sacrificing to one another, and how that models for us what it looks like for us to be the community of faith, that we are to, in Paul's words, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that there's a certain way that we're supposed to interact that is modeling the Trinity, Well, today I want to take one further step. What does this all matter? It matters because the deepest longing of our hearts are satisfied by him alone. And he has invited us in. And so hopefully you are in John chapter 17. Uh, Mary Richard is going to come and she's going to read for us the end of Jesus' prayer. It's all worth studying, but we're just going to look at the last portion. Uh, We're going to actually look at John 20. To verse 24. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may 
all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The Father, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I'm so thankful, not just for your word, but for the sound of Mary's voice as she's reading it because it's a reminder to me that we are all still learning what this means and we are in process of figuring it out. And so thank you for the window into the mystery through your word. Now as we look at your word, would you guide us? Would you speak to us by your spirit? Would any of my words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit remain and teach us, shape us, lead us forward, we pray. And so speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as you listen to Mary read that prayer, hopefully you followed along as well because my goodness, it's almost impossible to figure out what in the world is being said there. Hopefully you got a little bit of a taste of the mystery. I want to start by looking at the mystery of the oneness that Jesus talked about and how it impacts us as a community. And then I want to look at a bold prayer. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays boldly over the Ephesian church and I want to make the case that it's actually an overflow of Jesus' prayer that Paul then begins to pray for the church. And I want to look at the question, what if both of those prayers are answered? What, what happens? And I'm calling that simply rhythms of grace. So we're going to look at a mystery of oneness, a bold prayer, and rhythms of grace. Let me read for you, uh, with a bit of a paraphrase, those first couple verses that Mary read for us. Jesus is praying, and he comes before the Father. He says, I don't ask for just my disciples, these only, but I'm asking for all of those people who will believe in my name through their word, all the ones who will listen to the disciples and follow. I'm asking for them, the church, universal, all of us. And I'm asking this, verse 21, that all of them would be one just as you, Father, Jesus talking to his Father, and uh, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us. So Jesus just said, uh, Father, I'm praying to you that the same connection that I'm in you and you're in me, that all of those who will follow, the universal church, all who call themselves followers of Jesus, that they would also be in me, us, as we are in one another. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is gonna make some powerful claims in the midst of his prayer. The first thing he's gonna claim, and this is probably the hardest for us to get our mind around, is that the relationship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, the connection that we have simply because we are both followers of Jesus, that is the most important relationship we have on this earth. 
Now that's really tough to get our mind around because we have family, we have friends, we have people who agree with us on stuff and, and we have people probably in our lives who are less annoying than one another, right? Like, let's just be honest. Like, there's people who we like better. Uh, so, so how could it be that these blood relationships of family and these deep relationships of uh, friends that we've been with forever, how could it be that the strongest relationship, the most important relationship we have is a relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe even some that I've never met on the other side of the world. Well, what Jesus prays, uh, allow this to get into your head and your heart, that, that they may all be one, us, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. What he says is that the prayer of the heart of Jesus right before he goes to the cross is that followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ, would have a relationship that approximates the relationship between the Trinity, that the connection between Father, Son, and Spirit is in some way the connection that you and I have with one another. That there's this depth of relationship that is to be there. And then he says that that testimony, that, that unity is a testimony to the world around us. So not only are we connected most deeply through our bond of Christ, but it's the unity that ties us together that is the testimony of the world around us. That, um, that we, uh, we, we draw together in a way that reflects the glory of Jesus. And, and he says that by making a third claim that is, uh, that's a little bit more implicit in the text. But basically what Jesus is going to say is that the way that that happens is not because we work really hard to be unified. That we, it's not that we, we lock arms and we invest in these relationships to make sure they're the most important thing. The, the unity that comes, comes because of worship, prayer, and repentance. It comes because we draw close to God. Let me say it another way. We become unified not because we're trying to be unified. We become unified because as we draw close to the glory of Jesus, we can't help but draw close to one another. Now, as I say that, I need to say right after it that that does not mean that unity is easy or requires no effort. Because why would Jesus have prayed it? If it was just a natural outflow of what it means to be a Christian, he wouldn't bother praying it, especially right before he goes to the cross. But it's not easy, and here's why. Because if we are drawn together, not by our efforts toward unity, but by our worship of Jesus alone, that means that for all of us, Jesus has to be more important than all the other stuff. So where there is disunity in the church, the issue is not that we're not trying hard enough to be unified. Where there's disunity in the church, it's because we are all not looking to Jesus as central. And there's this longing of the heart of Jesus that we would see what's most important in the world and therefore sacrifice whatever else it takes in order to draw close to the person of Jesus. And when we do that, the payoff is incredible. The world begins to see that Jesus indeed is sent from the Father, that he indeed is Lord, that he indeed is the answer. But it requires us to be unified around the glory of Jesus. So if that's the case, if there's this invitation in, how do we start to live it out? 
So I want you to turn to Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter three. You've probably heard this prayer spoken over you as a benediction, either here or somewhere else. It's a very appropriate uh, benediction and a good word to go out on. But it's also a very specific prayer that Paul's praying. Let me give you a little bit of context. The book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, is the easiest to outline of all of Paul's letter writing. It's a, uh, a two-part macro-level book where there are three chapters where all Paul's saying in the first three chapters is, this is what's true about you. There's literally not one command or one admonition in the first three chapters. It's all just receive. This is, this is true. This is true. This is true. So Paul's just saying over and over again, this is the reality of what happens when you are in Christ. And then in chapter four and forward, it's all about what you do about it. So the entire back half of the book is all the action. So literally, Paul says in the beginning of of chapter four, this is how you live worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Here's the way it works. And then he just starts to lay it out. This prayer at the end of Ephesians three is the bridge between the two. It's the space where Paul's saying, because of all that's true, God, would you do this work in us so that we could indeed live worthy of the calling by which we've been called? So let me read for you the prayer, and I want you to try to listen, not as though it's a benediction or churchy words that you've heard before, but listen to the heart of Paul as he prays over the church. Starting in verse 14, for this reason, all the stuff that he's just said, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul is coming before the church at Ephesus. I believe with the longing of Jesus' prayer in his mind, that unity and the the love that we are to share with one another and the way that he prays it, verse by verse, uh, builds this case of unity. Let me start in uh, verse 16. So the first thing that Paul requests in this prayer is that according to the riches of his glory, excuse me, this is the glory of the Father, that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the prayer that Paul's praying is that in your inner being, the spirit of God, the one who indwells you, the third person of the Trinity, would strengthen you with his power. Now, why does he pray that? Are you ready for the answer? Because you're annoying and so am I. So this is the big challenge, right? We're supposed to love one another and it's hard to love one another when sometimes you don't even like each other, right? Like it's like uh, there, there are people that I would choose to be with and then there's the church and they're just here, right? That's the, that's the big challenge. Unless you think I'm being too harsh, try to spend a week with me and see what you think at the end. Ask my wife, it's rough. It's, it's rough, that's the way it is. It's all of us, like we're annoying people. 
And so when, when Paul prays, he starts by saying, the spirit of God that's in you, may he strengthen you with his power. Because all kidding aside, sinful people, loving sinful people is a miraculous work of the divine. That is not something that we do naturally. William Barclay was commenting on a parallel passage in the book of Colossians. Listen, listen to the way he said it. So bear with people that unpleasantness and maliciousness and cruelty will never drive us to bitterness, that their unteachableness will never drive us to despair, that their folly will never drive us to irritation, and that their unloveliness will never alter our love. He's so encouraging, isn't he? Like, like you, you know, you're an unteachable jerk, but I'm hoping that we're going to be able to still love each other, right? That's, the, that's what he's saying. I'm just paraphrasing for modern language, right? Like he's saying, like, look, like there, there's people who are unpleasant and, and mean and cruel, and I don't want that to make you bitter. There are people who are unteachable, but don't let that drive you to despair. They're foolish, but don't let that irritate you, and who are really hard to love, but love them anyway. That's what he's saying that God would strengthen you in your inner being by his spirit. Not so that you could do all kinds of miraculous things, but that you would do the really miraculous thing, love the people around you, love each other. So Paul starts by saying, may the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, give you his power in your inner being. And then he says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, he's not saying that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is going to disappear out of your heart. What he's saying is that you would remember that he's right here alongside of you. That when you're living, when I'm living, when we're engaging normal life together and alone in spare time and in focused work or play time, that we would remember that Christ is right there alongside of us, that he's in us that we would be drawn back because if indeed what unifies the people of God to make us love one another is the glory of Jesus, then we need to remember that he's there because how often are we in the midst of activity and forget that Jesus is right there alongside of us? That Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he goes on to say that you being rooted and grounded in love, we're, we're used to that, that's kind of church language for us, but there's actually a mixed metaphor going on here. He's talking about rooting, which is an agricultural metaphor, and being grounded, which is an architectural metaphor. What he's saying is that, um, that there would be a seed that's planted that would take good root, and there would be a foundation that's built that would be solid, so that um, in both instances, growth would happen. And so here's the heart of what Paul's praying. You're not going to do this right away and on your own. There's going to be work that's going to be done over time. It's going to be progressing. And you're going to get that sense of progression as he continues to pray because there's this movement that has to happen. The seed has to grow. The house has to be built. And so then he goes on to say, may you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. That, that phrase, strength to comprehend, it literally means to grab hold of. May you grab a hold of the, the, the breadth and height and, and the, 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 the amazingness of the breadth of God. May you grab a hold of him. May you get it in a way that you can't quite get because then he's gonna say, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Isn't that a fun prayer? 
Like you need to know that that word literally is know and experience. Would you, that you would know and experience something that is unknowable and unable to be experienced. So that, that's what I'm praying for you. What, what's he saying? Well, he's saying, I, I want you to know the love of Christ. I want you to experience the love of Christ and you can and you are. And it's the unknowable, unexperienceable, did I say that word right? I don't think so. Um, uh, love of God because you're gonna know more tomorrow. Like, you know what you feel like is all of the love of Christ today. But tomorrow you're going to know more. And next week you're going to know more. And next month you're going to know more. And if you keep following Jesus for decades, in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you're going to still know more because it's unknowable. And you're going to get all the way to the throne of God and say, oh, it's even so much more than I thought. And so this idea, the, the prayer of Paul is that we would know the love of God and experience the love of God and then keep knowing the love of God and keep experiencing the love of God. That it would be this flow over us because then the capstone of his prayer at the end of verse 19 is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that phrase fullness of God, it literally means the sum of his attributes. All the stuff of God. And here's where we get to the heart of the prayer. That neurological instability, that longing that we have, it's only the sum of the fullness of God, the sum of the attributes of God that can fill it up. What we need is something that's far beyond a bit of God and far beyond a whole bunch of anything else. Like, if, if, if you have this experience of saying, I just need a little bit more money or a little bit more comfort or a little bit more pleasure or a few more relationships or a little bit more security. What you're going to find and what some of you have found is that once you get that, all you need is a little bit more of it, right? And then once you get that, you just need a little bit more of it and you never get to the end of it that you think, okay, now I have it. You're always looking for a little bit more of it. That's the way it works. And on, on the flip side, if you have an experience of God that is uh, somewhat one-dimensional, I know enough of Jesus to come to an altar and pray a prayer and, um, uh, and trust him to the extent I understand, and that's where it ends, what you're going to find is that that still doesn't satisfy you. Because it's not just a little bit of God. It's not just a taste of the divine. Paul says, I pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. That there would be a, a, a fullness of all the attributes of Jesus put together that would, that would fill you up so that you would be truly satisfied. That your neurological instability would go away. So what happens if Jesus' prayer and Paul's prayer and our prayer as they echo those two prayers, what happens if God answers those prayers? What's that look like? I want to answer that question with a picture, an, uh, an illustration. Um, back in 1996, New Year's Eve 1996 into New Year's Day 1997, Amanda and I were still dating, and we made the decision, for better or for worse, to go to the New Year's Eve celebration in Times Square. Now, if you've never done New Year's Eve in Times Square, let me tell you, it's something that you 
maybe should, could at least do one time, and I wouldn't suggest it any more than that. It's, it's chaos. I mean, it's just a mass of humanity. Uh, we, we actually got let into this one area, and I turned around and saw the, like, literally thousands of people coming down on me, and we escaped and went to a coffee shop about 15 blocks away, and through the glass window, I saw the ball drop. And it was the coldest New Year's Eve on record, and I was so glad to be warm. I didn't care about all the rest of it. It was, it was glorious. It was great. We drank coffee and watched the ball drop, and we sat there for about an hour, hour and a half to kind of let the crowd die down. And then we walked to Penn Station because we were getting on the train, the Long Island Railroad, to go back out to our friend's house in Long Island where we were staying. And so when we walked into Penn Station, maybe 15, 20 blocks down, we walk in, it's quiet on the road, but we get inside and it's like, if you're a claustrophobic person who doesn't like crowds, it's the kind of thing that makes you wake up in a cold sweat at night. Like, it's awful. There's just people everywhere. They're sitting on top of one another. There's literally no space left in the entire, the entire room. And like, three quarters of them are drunk. It's just awful. It's like all the bad stuff at one time. And if you've ever been in Penn Station, the, the call board that tells you when the next train's coming has this, this sound to it. And so you're there, and we're waiting, and we hear, and the, the train comes up. And like three people get up out of the crowd of humanity and walk down the tunnel and go to their train. Okay, and then another one, three more people, five more people, 10 more people, whatever it is. And we know our train's just about there. It's going to be coming. Uh, it's going to be coming in the next minute or so, and we're watching the call board, and sure enough, and it's our train. And we're like, all right. So we stand up along with every single other person in that room, like everybody. And they all get up together and they start running to the train because they know the train can't fit all these people. So they all start running to the train. So we literally stand up, we take one step and the crowd carries us. Like you literally don't, you're not even doing anything. Like there's this poor woman who got slammed into the wall because the tunnel is not as big as the crowd is, right? And so if you're on the outside of the crowd, you just can't get, you just can't do anything about it. And you're just like carried all the way down in and we all, get shoved on like I feel like we got onto the train without taking another step we took one step we ended up on the train the train is completely filled and some guy who just finished a fifth of whiskey finished a fifth of whiskey is walking up and down talking to everybody I don't even know how he could move I don't understand it's like the whole thing just moved as strange as it sounds that's what it means to enter in to the flow of what Jesus is doing remember that old Greek word that we looked at two weeks ago, the early church fathers termed the Trinity the parachoresis, the circle dance, the flow and movement of these three persons of the Trinity with one another, connected to one another, and in one another. There's this flow that they have. And they're constantly moving and engaging in perfect harmony all together. And when we enter into that, when we, through worship and prayer and repentance, through a, a commitment to one another and a love for the world around us, when we enter into that dance, what starts to happen is we start to flow like that crowd in Penn Station. We start to move with them. We start to uh, have this like, uh, uh, immediate reaction where the joy that's always been in the Godhead becomes our joy. And the peace that the three persons of the Trinity always experience, that's our peace. And the movement of God in one direction or another direction becomes the very natural way that we move. And so with that in mind, I want to take you to one more passage, and this is one that you're probably somewhat familiar with, but I want to give you another perspective on it, and that's in Matthew chapter 11. 
We're going to wrap up here. In Matthew 11, there's a lot of context that is worth looking at at some other point in time, but um, what I want you to see is this last statement of Jesus to all the disciples. And he's going to make a statement that is kind of paradoxical. Let Let me read it for you. This starts in verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's this mixed metaphor because Jesus is offering rest, and yet he's using the yoke, a work tool, to talk about rest. Enter into my work, in my way, with my tools, my yoke, and you'll have rest. When Eugene Peterson translated this text, he used the phrase, unforced rhythms of grace. That when we enter into the flow of who God is, it's not just during our Sabbath times or our rest times or our quiet times in the morning, but it's in in our work, in the stuff that we have out in front of us, we enter into the unforced rhythms of grace. There's this movement that starts to happen and just like the crowd in Penn Station, it's the spirit of God that picks us up and we start to enter in to the flow of that dance. I realized this week that we are three weeks into 2024 and I have not yet given you a Dallas Willard quote. That is totally inappropriate, I'm so sorry. And so um, this is from Renovation of the Heart. Listen to what Dr. Willard says. The apprentice is able to do and routinely does what he or she knows to be right before God because all aspects of his or her person has been substantially transformed. What he's saying is that we, as we follow Jesus, start to naturally do the right things before God, not because we're trying to do the right stuff, but because we've been changed from the inside out, because the spirit of God has taken root in our inner being, because we recognize that Christ is alongside of us and we start to naturally flow with him. Remember, you may have heard me say before, Dr. Willard's uh, definition of spiritual maturity is that we would naturally and easily do what Jesus would do if he were us. That just flows out of us. The flow that we've been invited into is the dance of the Trinity. I want to say one final thing and then we'll wrap up. We live in an individualistic society that has a very high premium on what we choose to do. My opinion, my way of working. And you may hear this and think, I get it, but dancing alone is more fun and more free. And I would simply tell you, as you enter in to the dance of God, you recognize dancing was meant to happen with partners. We were meant to be connected together with him and with one another. And so as you enter into that dance, as you try it, as you're willing to allow your individualism to be broken down and you're willing to give some to be able to engage in a communal expression of the goodness of God, what you start to find is that joy is in the midst of that. Not in what you want or what you think, but in the flow of the way that God is working among his people. For the practice this week, um, on the application sheet that you can find online, you're going to find a very simple practice. I want to encourage you to pray that Ephesians 3 prayer, phrase by phrase, even word by word, 
to really dig into that prayer and pray it yourself over your own life and then pray it over others. Take time to ask God, who do I need to pray this over? And begin to pray it over one another. And maybe if you have the opportunity, pray it out loud before one another, to pray it intentionally over each other. As we pray into this flow, I think what we're gonna find is that the heart of God starts to draw us into his heart. We're gonna invite the worship team to come and they're gonna lead us out. And as they do, um, I just wanna say simply, there are three different kinds of people in this room. And I wanna just speak very briefly to all three of you. The first kind of person is here saying, um, yeah, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> like, I, I decided I was gonna follow Jesus at some point, or I decided I'd investigate Jesus at some point, or I showed up to church this morning because somebody made me, but I wasn't into a dance. I'm not sure what's happening here. And, and, and I wanna simply say this. Um, you may have been in relationship with Jesus for a, a week or 50 years and not known there was more to it than an intellectual decision to follow him. And I would simply say, don't feel bad about that. That's a lot of our story. Now's the time to enter in because he's inviting us into so much more than just making an intellectual decision. There's a way of living where he's central and everything else is secondary. And that's where joy is. And so if that's where you are, this may be the day for you to step into that. There's another group of you who maybe knew that at one point in time. You heard the invitation in. And maybe you've danced a little bit. But as Jesus said when he talked about the parable of the soils, the world and all of its cares have entered in and you've gotten distracted. It happens to a lot of us. Where we miss the flow of the dance because there's bills to pay and work to do and a family to raise and stuff. And we just get distracted. And so this is an opportunity for us to enter back in. To say, I, I know that there's been some time out of the dance, but I'm ready to step back in again. And you're, you're invited. There's no shame in that. You're just invited back in. And there's a third group that I wish was all of us, but I suspect is only a few, that have been in the dance and continue to be in the dance. And this is a reminder to us that Ephesians 3 is not a prayer that Paul prayed once for all, but rather in a continuous, ongoing way, he's saying that the Spirit would, would solidify you with power now and now and now and next week and next year, and it would continue on and on, that Christ would be beside you now and now and now and next week and next year, that this is an ongoing thing. So it's just an opportunity for us to re-up that reality, to enter back into that. So I'm gonna ask you to just close your eyes for just a moment. I've said a lot of stuff. I simply wanna pray that the Spirit of God would highlight what it is that he wants us to hear. And so Jesus, in the midst of all of those words and all of that stuff, would you show each one of us what it is that you're saying to us? Help it to come to mind and help us to grab hold of it.
Father, we thank you for your love for us that would send Jesus, that we would have life, that we would be redeemed, bought back into your glory and your presence. Jesus, we thank you that you've come, that we would have life. You've come to seek and save the lost, those of us who were dead in our sins, all of us, needed life through you. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you have come to us to animate us, to lead us, to convict us and challenge us, to guide us into all truth. Would you do that? We pray, Holy Spirit. God, we are so thankful for your love for us. Help us to rest in it and enter in to all that you have for us. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.